My favorite kind of people are open-hearted, active learners. These are people who generally are kind to others, try to not be a jerk, and are really engaged with the world and learning new things. This is one of the reasons I fell in love with the autoflower breeding community a few years back. This oft-maligned and ridiculed subgenre of cannabis cultivation are some of my favorite underdogs. In the early days, they were laughed and trolled right off the popular message boards until they eventually formed their own. And throughout the years of being hassled, they just kept sharing genetics and best practices with each other, slowly doing the difficult grunt work on autoflower genetics that will make all the future autoflower breeders look good. Modern autoflowers are pretty much just starting now. There have been some winners in the past, but now that Ruderalis has been tamed, now is the time when talented growers will really start building up the library of autoflower terpene profiles. If you have been listening to my show for a while, you probably noticed that I got turned on to the power of autoflowers about two years ago. I was attracted to autoflowers because they were a perfect solution for me to recommend to cannabis patients who have weather not as perfect for growing cannabis as California. From the Pacific Northwest where I live, through the northern climates of the Midwest, and the short summer cold northeast, we all want to grow under the sunshine, but our summers don't stay hot enough, and our real summer weather rarely lasts to the middle of October when we'd normally harvest. With an autoflower, you can start it outdoors the last week in May and harvest it mid-September, fully ripe and packed with terps and cannabinoids. Regular plants won't finish most places until at least mid-October, if at all. Early October cold and rain makes for a lot of disappointing growing seasons. With autoflowers, you are harvested, hung to dry, and often in jars well before the rain starts. So when I discovered autoflowers for myself, I dug in deeply to learn as much as I could and then programmed a whole year of autoflower content in 2019. I had a few podcast episodes, put together a half dozen live panels, and a pair of live events. I was even invited to write a jacket endorsement for the new Jeff Lowenfels book on autoflowers that came out that year. It was a lot of fun. Commercialization hasn't really come to autoflowers yet. They still have a very mixed reputation and home growing is still in its infancy in the US. But patients have adopted them and they are remaking patient home growing, which is really cool to watch. So today's show is an attempt to get the early days of autoflower history up to the present on record from the perspective of a person who was present from the beginning. This isn't a complete history because no one could do that, and we don't cover modern commercial hemp varieties like the work of Oregon CBD and others. But at the end of the show today, you will have a really well-fleshed-out understanding of the last 12 years of THC autoflowers being grown by home cultivators and the basics of what breeding autoflowers is all about. Have you used CBG-dominant cannabis flower, tincture, or other preparations in the last six months? Dr. Ethan Russo asked me to let you know that he and others are conducting a study to determine the benefits and drawbacks to cannabigerol, and they would love your opinion. The questionnaire takes about 10 minutes and can be anonymous if you wish. The study is available at bit.ly forward slash CBG study. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash capital CBG small case study. And the link is in the notes for this episode on shapingfire.com too. Thanks for considering participating. 
If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. This month, we are giving away Farmer Fly Selections seed packs of Chetawizzi and Vashon Lime Tonic to four different listeners who are subscribed to the updates. We did this contest last month on Instagram, and Farmer Fly had such a good experience that he suggested we run it again just for the Shaping Fire newsletter subscribers. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter this week and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. And be sure to check out Farmer Fly Selections on Instagram too. You are listening to Shaping Fire and I'm your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Dan Jimmy, more commonly known in the underground as Full Duplex. Dan is founder and breeder at Mandalorian Genetics, an award-winning and exceptionally well-respected line of autoflower seeds. He is also co-founder of autoflower.net, the center of the autoflower breeding and cultivation universe since 2010. Today we're going to take you back to 2008 in the autoflower world and walk us back to the present. Hey, welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, good morning, Shango. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm really glad that you made the time here during the holiday season. I've been wanting to have this chat with you for a while, and, and I'm glad we finally found the time. So let's get going by starting talking about the uh, legacy, um, the legacy autoflower cultivars that existed prior to um, 2010. Because, you know, as we'll talk later, 2010 seemed to be a real changing time. But prior to 2010, it was kind of crazy. Tell, tell us about those early early cultivars so yeah um around 2009 and uh, 2010 we um started to see the emergence of autoflowering strains hit the market i can remember um looking at seed banks like attitude seed bank back in the day and noticing these things were called autoflowers and that they were um light cycle independent um the only bad thing about that was is they weren't very potent and they didn't have a lot of terpene content and they just weren't robust plants. Um, some smaller cultivars, uh, quick and fast to grow. I think they were, they were definitely very early in their infancy at that stage. So when you say not a lot of terpene profile, do you mean that there just wasn't a lot there at all or just that it was unpleasant? I would say a combination of both, honestly. Um, you know, it smelled, the smell that was emitted from the flower wasn't like the gas that we look for today or the other terpene profiles that, you know, produce bakery smells or sweets and things of that nature. But it was just the, the smoke was a little harsh because it was still, you know, early ruderalis. It hadn't had a lot of uh, selection done to it. Uh, but what it did do was flower an unseemly or obscenely quick time. So where did these ruderalis genetics come from? From my memory um, and being around back then watching them emerge, a majority of this stuff um, was coming from the European market, uh, Spain and other EU territories where uh, they had been working with them you know, prior to 2010, uh, Lowrider, I think everybody remembers Lowrider 2. There was, you know, Snowrider and uh, Mossy's Purple Gem. There was also a few other companies out there. I think Dynafem had the Roadrunner Auto. And very early on, um, 
exploration of this plant. It makes sense that the ruderalis genetics would, you know, show up in uh, Europe first, considering the plants originally came from Siberia and Russia. I mean, those are, those are, you know, so close as far as traffic routes go, I can see how those seeds would, you know, easily be discovered um, in Russia, then make their way into, you know, Europe for people to start playing with then. You know, isn't it isn't it odd to think about how um, these same cultivars, these pre twenty ten cultivars, you know, to one group of people um, who were like, you know, visionary breeders, are like, oh my god, this can change everything, you know, over the next, you know, x amount of years, and then they're also the same cultivars that gave autoflowers such a terrible reputation, right? Because even though autoflowers have gotten so much better, there's still people who have that knee jerk response that oh, autoflowers suck, you know, bad yield bad smells and stuff and you know that was definitely true pre-2010 but uh but yeah these same cultivars inspired a bunch of people and then turned off a bunch of other people that they did it was it was truly a catch-22 and i think what you said there was right on point you know people saw a huge potential for these and may they they may not have known at that time what that potential was but they decided to give the plant a chance and then there are the folks that you know got that impression stuck in their head and then they didn't want to either mess with it anymore or give the the cultivar an opportunity to change by assisting it you know we've been assisting the cannabis plant in whole for centuries and i think that there was a group that snatched a hold of that new potential and really became like you said a visionary on it and then some people stuck in their ways it's kind of like the led versus uh HID lighting debate, you know, there's new tech and old tech and you see people using a hybrid of the two. Yeah. And, you know, it's what a pain in the ass, too. I mean, as far as breeding goes for we'll, we'll talk more about the, you know, the breeding in, in the third set. But just quickly, you know, breed, breeding autoflowers is not as simple as breeding regular photo periods where you're just like, you know, male meet female. Boom. You, you, you've chucked some pollen and now you've got new seeds. You know, with with the autoflowers, the, the ruderalis genetics were so janky with their low yields and smells to to, you know, to dress that up, people were crossing it into flowers that had a, a better reputation and more attributes that people liked. But, but man, it, it, it you're taking something that is janky and poor smell and hitting it against something that um, that you potentially like. Well, gosh, that takes a lot more work to breed out those attributes that we don't want. Exactly, it does take some time, especially if you're you know what I like to say, building a new cultivar from the ground up with ruderalis. Um, it's hard to get your hands on true ruderalis these days. Most people that want to start a project to where they take their um, their favorite photo period strain and they want to make it an autoflower, it does involve um, a few years worth of work to do so. So those early days, was there just essentially one ruderalis cultivar that people were handing around um, to to hit their their favorite plants with, or were, were there several to choose from? Earlier on, there were several to choose from. A lot of the painstaking work had been taken out of it with the arrival of Low Rider and Low Rider Two, the Purple Rider or Purple Gem, 
Um, Sour 60 was another big one um, back in that early time frame. And I think a lot of that sub work had been done to where the autoflowering or day neutral trait was dominant in the plant. And we sure owe a lot of credit to those cultivators, breeders early on who did all that like really annoying work to stabilize the, uh, you know, the autoflower recessive trait, right? Because like it would not be nearly as much fun if you had to do all that work just to make your own autoflower nowadays. That's correct. You know, they were definitely pioneers in the field. Um, And again, I'll touch back on like uh, Dutch Passion and Dynafem. You know, they saw the potential very early. They put in a lot of work behind the scenes. And, you know, I come from, and we've talked about this, we may talk about it a little more, is I came from the forum days. You know, there wasn't a... um, a Instagram out there or a Cannabuzz or any of these other platforms that we see today to where we could just openly share about what was going on. So how were autoflower breeders finding each other back, well, back pre pre 2010? So I can, I started delving into autos in 2009 and that's when, you know, you just kind of peruse these forums, um, that were out there mainly at the time for me was IC mag. Um, and, you would find other people growing these autoflowers and you would have to, you know, key item search or key term search to be able to locate them. But that's kind of how we were finding each other um, were through the forums. And once we found each other, you know, um, you start developing the relationships and sharing knowledge. Yeah, you were. De- we're going to be talking more about autoflower network here in a little bit, but um, and it, it, talk a little bit about how rough it was to be an autoflower person on these on these breeder sites. So you know, we were the the joke, the butt of all the jokes, the never taken seriously. Anytime that you would go into say just a generalistic forum about understanding a, a set of nutrients or understanding a soil type or a grow medium type. The minute that you mentioned that you were growing an auto cultivar, it went, you know, radio silence or you got, (laughs) you know, or you get, you know, you got laughed at, you got told you're growing ditch weed. Um, You know, it was kind of, you know, it was getting bullied for the, for lack of better term back in those early days. So, you know, we kind of had to, uh, you know, rely on each other and rely on a community. Right on. So, so that was a drag and we're really grateful, um, that we have so many more resources now and, and let's, so let's, let's, let's talk about how that turning that corner happened. So, you know, for anybody who's been following this, there's some like, like, magic happened there around 2010 2011 and a lot of things in the autoflower scene happened at once and they were all going in the direction of stronger autoflowers and a stronger autoflower community um so what do you think happened there in 2010 um that really started to you know push the threshold and and turn the corner to to this what you know present blossoming of the autoflower scene you know, I'll take it back to community. Um, everybody that was joining up on these forums, they initially started out in one place, and then one thing leads to another. You either get banned or you move on. And um, around 2010, we started finding each other in a new forum, um, roll it up, and I noticed an influx. And what we decided to do was basically have one sole dedicated thread to autoflowering cannabis because we were searching and hunting for a sub forum or a place that we could go in as the community at large who all had the same love for the specific cultivar cannabis and we could share the stuff that 
to all make us understand it and grow it better because in the main forums it was getting lost in the wind you know it was you know a few posts here a few posts there a section here and there wasn't one simple central resource for all of us just to get together and trade ideas with and have a virtual smoke sesh if you will and share about this so I think around 20, I know around 2010 there was a, um, a thread formed and roll it up and that's where I noticed a lot of people starting to migrate too and see a need for um, better information more in depth and places to talk about experience with them other than just oh my god this plant flowers without a light cycle eh, it doesn't taste very good but we can grow a lot of weed quick so is this so so right after this period when you started seeing these people come together um, on the roll it up is this when you and your co-founders decided now is the time to create your own home with autoflower.net the autoflower network in a nutshell yes you know I had brought over the forum called or not the forum but excuse me the thread called the art of the auto and roll it up and it was a place where it was centralized like I was speaking about before. And after working in there for a few months, I got um, approached by um, a breeder by the name of Mossy and a gentleman from Canada um, to basically create our own home. We had begged admin and roll it up multiple, multiple times just to give us a sub form. We weren't looking for a dedicated forum. Um, our main page splash page on their site. We just wanted a place where we can make it easier for people to find each other instead of having to comb and comb through, you know, Google search results or even a really poor search engine on a forum. And so we got approached and we started spitting ideas and what we wanted it to be. And one thing led to another and a gentleman from Canada got the server space and knew a little bit of coding. I knew some backend work as far as server maintenance and building. And Mossy had the information and experience. She was one of the earlier, what I like to call independent breeders that weren't big name like Dutch Passion and Dynafem. You know, she had really put the work into early Ruderalis and really working it geared towards meds and improving terpene profiles to where, you know, it was actually a good medication for better circulation for nighttime. And so she played a huge key role and she's kind of a silent person and I like to talk about you know talk about her as much as I possibly can because she was a mentor a to me and I think she left a huge impact as she had one of the first colored autoflowering auto cannabis varieties out there so is where was she living or still I don't know She's still in Spain. Spain. It's interesting how much Spain comes up right around this time with the change in genetics. Would you say that, um, you know, Spain was at the forefront of the of the new the new wave of autoflower genetics at this time? I would agree with that. There was a huge gravitational pull towards that region. Um, Spain has some different laws than what we do, and especially at that time. And I think it was a as a hub for a lot of this autoflower. And from what my experience has been in, you know, kind of growing up in this culture, for lack of a better term, is seeing like a lot of the stuff is European based, but a lot of it's Spain based. It's it's interesting too because um, you know 
people there's one set of people who talk about the fantastic heritage genetics that come from Europe and then and then you've got other people who talk about these trashy European genetics and I think that like you know they're both are probably true right just 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 like most truths have got a little bit of this and a little bit of that um, you know there's all of this this uh, this new amazing work that's coming out of Spain at this time. But then there's also other people putting out stuff that had not really hit the mark of, of some of those folks that were bringing their seeds over. And so, yeah, there was good and good and bad stuff coming out of Europe, just like there's probably good and bad stuff coming out of everywhere right now. What, what, you know, do you remember some of those names coming out of Spain? Who, who were the first reliable people doing stuff in Spain around that, around this 2010 time? Around the 2010 time, um, again, Dutch Passion, Dynafem, um, I hadn't seen some of our newer big brands that come out of Spain quite yet at 2010 because I think with, we'll give an example of one of the cultivars was Think Different by Dutch Passion. It was the largest autoflower I had ever seen within a year. And I think they were working on it well before, obviously, the 2010 mark or coming into the 2011 mark. But it was called Think Different, and it was huge. Um, guys went from getting a few ounces per plant and it, to getting a pound per plant grown in the you know proper conditions. And it really, I think, set off like this emergency flare of like, there's some huge potential here. And so I think it helped shift some people who were on the fence to really take a look at this plant and start working it as a whole. And I think some people made some huge, you know, changing decisions to grab a hold of that um with with the resurgence of of spain spanish autoflower genetics or maybe not resurgence but the explosion of spanish autoflower genetics and with people around the world you know being able to see that happening between the various forums uh you know a couple of the threads but then also the beginning of autoflower um network um did there did there did, did spain start to attract attention for being a leader and start to you know attract brain power towards it i definitely think it did i can remember early on so you know we'll kind of fade into the beginning of autoflower.net we get a forum up we have an informational board we've got people coming from all over the world to join we you know harvested a lot of people from the older threads the older message boards and i think it gave a gateway for people to come in and start to share and then i noticed um after we get everything up and running, I have to take a little bit of a hiatus and I come back. And when I come back, I see this this new brand that, A, at first, the hillbilly in me didn't know how to pronounce, pronounce the name. But after seeing it enough, I had to do my research, and that was Mephisto. <laughs> and and so I've... I've um was was Mitch in Spain or was was Mitch going to Spain? Because I've never been clear about that. Because I always thought I always thought Mephisto was an American brand, but then then but then people keep on telling me like, oh, when Mitch went to Spain, like did he come back? What's what's the story? Um, from what I know, Mitch left to go to Spain. From where I am not a hundred percent certain on that part of the backstory, but I do know that he went to Spain to really put in the work to you know build up the Mephisto brand. For so many people, that really seems to have been 
like Mitch is part of a lot of people's um, background story, right? Like when I when I talk to people, early heads who are into auto flowers, a lot of them, you know, get to a point in their story where, and then I got a bunch of seeds from Mitch, you know, and it, it seems that um, uh, you know Mitch going to Spain with the connections that he already had solidified, and him deciding that he was going to be. You know, he wanted to he wanted to learn in that scene. He wanted to be a part of the best practices. Uh, and and you know, I don't want to put words in his mouth because I I haven't had the opportunity to interview him. But but um, you know, someone goes to a hot spot because they want to participate. And I can imagine that um, he got so excited that that's where a lot of these people got turned on too was like through him. Yeah, you know, I agree. You know, and once his genetics started popping up on the forums and started popping up. Um, on the Autoflower Network, you know, it really gained him a lot of credibility for what he was doing. Um, and so to answer your other question about it being a stateside company, I don't think it really was a stateside company ever. It was just a way to get that flowing to the stateside. And, and maybe maybe I just thought it was a, a U.S. company because there are there's so many of his seeds here and um, there is such a huge... Um, following for him you know i mean there are there are a handful of good autoflower uh breeders putting out seeds now no doubt but i would say for for you know most folks uh, mephisto is you know has been the top of the mountain for a long time people wanted those seeds and and they were often sold out which you know makes everybody want them more and uh you know in the last few years certainly there there's a lot of other really excellent you know other people breeding including yourself um but i think that um mephisto deserves a lot of um respect for for being some of the first folks to you know um, really stabilize, mass produce, and get out these new autoflower uh, um, cultivars, but at the same time doing it in a savvy, cool way with creative packaging and and you know engaging names and they you know the, the whole the whole package where it made it really easy to become like a fanboy, you know. Exactly. No, I agree. You know, it was a different. It was definitely a different approach that none of us had seen before. Because I don't know if you purchased seeds back around that time frame. I mean, they had a. They may have came in a snazzy like Matchbox style um, booklet with a glass vial in the center. Um, you know, they may have some cultivar information on the back, expected cycle times and expressions, but there was never really a um, marketing angle that what you saw with Mephisto. It was definitely different than we had seen before, and that this kind of like that kind of brings it all together, right? Like we've got we've got all these new genetics being developed in Spain um, now that the you know the actual autoflower, you know the recessive Rudy has been stabilized so that people could just use it. You know they don't have to do six or seven years of of you know breeding work to isolate that before even trying to make their flavors they could just take somebody else's work and then build their flavors on top of it so all these great 
uh, all, all this, all these great seeds coming out of Spain, and then, and then, you know, uh, Mitch and folks like Mitch going to Spain and spreading that information around the world, and then Autoflower Network creating this community where autoflower breeders could feel at home and share best practices internationally. I mean, boom, right? I mean, I think that is that is the turning point where the entire modern autoflower scene come from, comes from. Yeah, you know, I definitely think that there was a, you know, a tri-spoked thing where it was like these three massive things came to a head and it just kind of supernovaed from there. Um, you know, they started to get in better recognition. Cultivars were becoming better. There was actually variety. You know, it wasn't just short plant one and short plant three. <laughs> you actually had some, you know, real variety starting to show up. Um, you know, you were talking about laying the foundation of the original ruderalis and, you know, like we've talked about earlier in this, it's a very gangly and, you know, runty style plant. And then now for somebody to be able to just give you picks and choices and expressions that you want, you could really see how the foundation and how the mentality has changed. Yeah, right on. Cool. Right on. Well, um, let's go ahead and take our first short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Dan Jimmy of Mandalorian Genetics and the Autoflower Network. Oxygen is an essential plant nutrient, and keeping sufficient dissolved oxygen in the root zone is a challenge. Gaia's brand of ultra-fine nanobubble systems will help your garden thrive in ways you may not have considered. No matter if you grow in soil, hydroponics, or aquaponics, Gaia's ultra-fine nanobubble systems will increase your dissolved oxygen and increase your yield. Often, the first sign of inadequate oxygen supply to the roots is wilting of the plant under warm conditions and high light levels. Insufficient oxygen results in an accumulation of toxins and an insufficient amount of water and mineral absorption. If oxygen starvation continues, mineral deficiencies will begin to show, roots die back, and plants will become stunted. Healthy roots supplied with sufficient oxygen are able to absorb nutrient ions selectively from the surrounding solution as required. In studies, this has shown a 30% increase in plant growth. Not only do ultra-fine oxygen bubbles allow your plants to thrive, but they will keep your drip lines and irrigation pipes and plumbing clean too, because algae, pythium, and other invasive species only survive in low oxygen environments. And the Gaia system only costs about $2 per day to run. Gaia Ultrafine Oxygen Nanobubblers are also great for making compost teas and wildcrafted nutrient teas. The smaller bubbles of truly dissolved oxygen allow more microbes to reproduce faster. Go to Gaia's website at h205.com to learn more about using dissolved oxygen and how to purchase this simple yet amazing technology. That's h205.com. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert Biological Systems has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. 
Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the U.S. from coast to coast. No matter where you live, Copert Biological Systems can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T.com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check out their Instagram, at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. With the National Hemp Program in flux due to stringent THC testing requirements, brothers Seth and Eric Crawford continue to release seeds to hemp farmers that will be legal, no matter how you grow them or when you test them. These new varieties from Oregon CBD seeds have substantial amounts of CBDV, CBGV, CBCV, and THCV, while always staying below the 0.3% THC limit and guaranteeing compliant crops for farmers every time. Also, these new varieties cannot be pollinated by your neighbor's uncontrolled pollen or a rogue male in your own crop either. Oregon CBD seeds are non-GMO certified too. Oregon CBD seeds was founded and funded in 2015 by Seth and Eric, maxing out their personal credit cards without outside investment. They continue to refuse outside investment that would change their company culture. Oregon CBD grows tons of fresh food on their research farms for local food banks, literally tons of food. They also give away tens of thousands of pounds of R&D flour to patients. As their company began to succeed, Seth and Eric started donating money to the cannabis medicine and hemp fiber cause too by giving millions of dollars to Oregon State University in order to establish the world's leading cannabis genomics research program. And they treat their employees right. Oregon CBD pays for full health and dental coverage for their employees, a 401k program, and their minimum starting wage is 20 bucks an hour. Plus, everyone shares food from the farms. Seth has been on Shaping Fire a few times to talk about novel cannabinoids. You can check out episodes 25 and 37 on CBD cultivars in the hemp market, episode 66 on triploid cannabis genetics, and the very first Shaping Fire Live, episode 47, with Seth and soil expert Jeff Lowenfels talking about autoflowers. If you are a hemp farmer and you want to grow reliable seeds that are sure to thrive and pass testing, check out OregonCBDSeeds.com to learn more about buying seeds for the 2021 season. That's OregonCBDSeeds.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Dan Jimmy of Mandalorian Genetics and the Autoflower Network. So before the break, we were talking about this threshold moment in like 2010, 2011 time where we had this combination of um, you know uh, autoflowers becoming really stabilized in Spain, people going to Spain because they wanted to participate, um, people then sending their seeds all around the world and then people getting to know each other and best practices through the autoflower network and it all kind of came together at once so 
you know, over these last, you know, nine years or so since then, we have seen uh, yields increase, terpene profiles uh, better. Um, you know, just, just the plants are getting more sophisticated. Um, I'm really curious, uh, Dan, what you are seeing now. I mean, like, you're you're a breeder's breeder, right? Like you 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 not only breed really excellent autoflower plants that people enjoy to grow and are great for parent patients and they look pretty. Like not only that, but you're also like um, you know you you help run autoflower network and you're a nerd, right? So you are you're 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 you're, you're, you're you know you're you are into the details of a lot of this. And so I'm hoping that um, you can give me a good kind of overview of, of what we're seeing the different veins of, because, you know, as we know, breeders work on different parts of the plant, the parts that interest them. And um, I am not involved enough in the autoflower breeding scene to know what these other buckets are. So, so let me just hand you the mic and, and why don't you just tell us what you are seeing um, evolve here in the in the last you know let's say six years and and where you see people working and feel free to name drop if you want but mostly I, I want us all to have a better idea of of what's being worked on and what's novel in autoflowers right now sure I mean honestly you know quickly the, the things I can see is a potency increase true terpene profile increase uh, changes and um, I think the biggest thing is the overall structure and flower to leaf ratio um, are the biggest three shifts I've seen most recently. Um, I've seen, you know, in the earlier days, you see a lot of stuff that was probably based off the low rider or low rider two genetics. Some of it could have been done from the sour 60 stuff we saw earlier, or even the road runners from Dynafem. And oh, you could see, even though it was from these different brands and different breeders, you could see some similarities between those plants. And what I mean by that is you see a lot of the ruderalis, you know, still coming through. Yeah, the yields increased. Yeah, the plant size has increased. But we're still seeing a lot of the morphology from the ruderalis. Um, may that be high leaf ratio, long extended leaves um, from the main stem on your main fans. Um, up until now, where you actually can tell a difference between a cultivar through some breeders um you know they've become more stabilized uh i think the people that have put in the most work are seeing more of a homozygous you know um cultivar expression per 10 pack um another thing that I've, I've seen that has shifted is it used to be commonplace to get regular seeds all the time like when you got out of flowers back in the early days, it was regular seed. There were very, very few feminized. And I think that was a big milestone for Mitch as well, was getting out mass numbers of feminized seeds for people. And now in the market, it's really, really hard to find regulars. And all you seem to find is uh, feminized autoflowers, which is fine and dandy. And it's great because there's multiple benefits and we can talk about that later. Um, but I think those are the biggest things that I've seen shift um, as well as potency. Um, you know, I personally, I took my whistle just a little bit, um, I've got several 18 to 25% THC cultivars that are coming out where back in the day you were lucky to see 13%. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's been a big change. And I think that comes with the selective breeding that's been going on. People moving more away from the traditional ruderalis and just seeking more of the day neutral trait rather than getting to the autoflower trait quicker. It's interesting. I like I like that little insight you tossed in there about um, the different 
um, the different strategies breeders will have. Whereas some folks are are taking hype strains and just hitting it with the Rudy and putting something out which you know may be a faster you know Girl Scout cookies, but but it may not be. I don't know finished right like like right. yes you successfully made the auto flower uh she goes fast but um but there's something extra to it to i don't know sculpt the terpene profile so that it's more than the hype name and whereas other folks are not looking to reproduce the hype name and they're coming at it from a different direction you know, independently, not trying to recreate something else, but in, instead to create something different. And I'm not saying that that neither. I, I'm not saying that just hitting, you know, a, a hype strain with you know ruderalis is bad. I'm not saying that because I I have grown a lot of fun stuff that way too. All I'm pointing out is that it's a different approach. It is a you know, it's a very specific breeding strategy. Correct. Yeah, it's just a different approach. Um, it's just like, you know, you can have several cooks in one kitchen. They all have one dish they got to make, but everybody gets to that point differently. Yeah, too, totally. And, you know, even we get this even in regs, right? We've got people who are, they're taking their Uber mail and they're hitting the, ta- the 10 hot strains that they like and they're doing you know all 10 of those versus this one Uber mail versus people who every project they've got has got different mails. Correct. Yeah. So, um, so, um, as you are, as you were seeing these, um, these different attributes come out of the plant, um, when did you start to see the period where people were starting to start to be picked up more at retail, right? Like, like, um, no doubt when they started making so many feminized autoflower seeds, they got picked up, um, really quickly by the, uh, by the patient market, right? Because right. there, there really isn't a better patient home grow plant than a feminized autoflower. It is the easiest of easiest, and uh, and you know, um, you know, I, you know, I teach that to the patients that I work with. Like, hey, you need a safe place to start. This is your safest place to start. But that that doesn't necessarily mean that that's where when people when when autoflower breeders used to like more successfully actually get money for their seeds, right? Because it's one thing trading with your friends because the market isn't there for it. But then there's the day that comes that people start buying the seeds. When did you when do you think that started? I mean, I bought my my first autoflower seeds all the way back in 2009 when oh, I first got mm-hmm. when I got involved with it. And that came from the Attitude Seed Bank. Um, that you had you still had some options available, but it wasn't as widespread as today. Um, there were a couple brands out there, um, and I know I keep repeating Dutch Passion and Dynafem, but those two are, are so stuck in my memory from just the wow factor seeing these things. And there are. Uh, several other great brands that I know I'm forgetting to mention right now, and I apologize, but, you know, uh, I want to say Nirvana was another location you could find them to. Um, and, yeah, you could buy them as early as back then, but I think the larger influx came probably 12, 13, once the forum started getting more momentum and, you know, Mephisto was getting momentum and then, the market was kind of driving itself that way. And I could be off a little bit with those dates as far as like the mass boom of when everything took off for that group. But um, from my memory, and if my memory serves me right, you know, I know it was somewhere in between 2011 and 2020 that it really, really took off. But you could buy them back as early as 2009 on Attitude. 
So, um, you know, as far as the ruderalis taste, um, to what uh, degree do you think the ruderalis taste is still prevalent in all of the auto flowers? Because it, it does seem to be uh, different from breeder to breeder. What do you think is influencing how much you're tasting the, the grassy Rudy in there? I think it's breeder selection. Um, I think it is, you know, dependent upon what they're looking for as a result part of the plant, what the parent inputs were. Um, I think I spoke about this earlier, about the higher leaf ratio. Um, Ruderalis is known to have high leafy content in between its buds, therefore giving you more chlorophyll, which in turn, if it's not dried and cured properly, gives you a lot more of that grass hay taste to the flower. And I think with the improvement of you know, the calyx to leaf ratios on these plants, we're seeing a lot of that dissipate. And I think that's what's happening when people are doing selective breeding with an outside source, maybe another photo period or something of that nature where it's not continuance of um, the Rudy gene. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, which is probably not fair, but I'm going to be, I'm going to ask you to uh, name drop some of the breeders that, that you think are doing good work. And I want to, I want to preempt this by saying that, you know, I recommend that everybody go to autoflower.net and, you know, if you're interested in growing autoflowers or if you're interested in breeding them, that is the place to go because um, that is where I went to find um, the seeds that were being made by talented people that may not necessarily have the commercial push behind them yet, right? Because the autoflower for sale scene is still very young. And and so you're still, you know, buying from a lot of uh, individuals, either, you know, via mail or, um, you know, at a at a convention or, or, or a big smoke sesh or something like that. And um, so, so, you know, that is a really great place to buy is to go and, and look at the plants and read the threads and find out the person who you dig their style and then, and then buy direct. So, so that's cool. But there's no question also that there are a couple um, really good seed banks now that are bringing people together to represent them, to take some of the sales off of the sales stress off of um, the, the breeders themselves, because just because you're a breeder does not mean that you are a great marketer of your own stuff either and you know you got to have respect for that so with, with all that being said and, and my encouraging people to hunt out breeders that are maybe less commercial um, why don't you plug a couple of folks who you appreciate their work for people who are, are looking to start with um, they want a good first autoflower experience um, definitely there's a few that come to the top of my head if they want a good first experience there's a company out there called night owl seeds um, which is run by Daz. Uh, he has done some phenomenal work, uh, has been trained by one of the best to produce auto femmes, and his stuff sells out everywhere. Um, it's one of the hardest, one of the hardest, you know, cultivar lineups to get your hands on. Um, when they come up for sale, they immediately sell out. Um, definitely think that that's a, a, a good place that people should start. Um, I've got a friend, uh, Brother Mendel's selections. They're based out of the middle of the country. Uh, they're not so much on in the seed banks, but if you search them out on Facebook and Instagram, you'll find some beautiful, beautiful worked cultivars from these guys. Um, they're auto femmes. Um, I've worked with some, I'm working with some of them myself now. Um, he really has a passion behind it, like Daz and myself, and you know, to kind of have that same 
and visionary style. I got a friend out here in Eastern Washington. He's an up and coming uh, breeder. It's Firebuds Genetics. Good friend of mine. Um, actually, I've been mentoring him for the last couple years. Um, we trade some information. I've seen some really good work coming out from him. Um, so those are, I'd say, up in my top three of you know what you can find locally that are doing you know approaching it in a different style to make a better plant for the community at whole. You know, I've go ahead. I was gonna say I've just seen a lot of their stuff expanding with the green wave coming and it's nice to see that happen with guys that are passionate about it and you know really put the time into work and and i know you're a humble dude but but i will also say that you know plug your mandalorian genetics because i love i love growing purple plants and you do a lot of purple lots of uh you know uh, candy smells and um reliable plants right and um um uh, you know we have grown a lot of them here on vashon island when i say we i mean uh folks who are patients on the island who are growing with their with their medical certification and and uh, you've been so kind as to donate seeds to our our local Vimia meetings, and so patients have been able to get some of your seeds for free. And it was really nice to see if so many people have a have a good first time experience with autoflowers, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, where like you often have summers like we did this summer, where nothing photo period finished because the weather was so bad and nights got cold so fast. So. By all means. Oh, you know, and, and your stuff wins awards too, right? So uh, <laughs> I'll trash on awards a different day. But, you know, that is something to be said when, when uh, you know, your stuff's winning awards. So Mandalorian is uh, well to be considered um, as well. So I like what you said, though, about um, the, you know, the, the auto flower scene being lifted up by this kind of, by the green rush, right? And I think that auto flowers are really the right place at the right time because there's so much more home growing and auto flowers are so convenient for newbie home growers and feminized seeds are, um, you know, convenient for everybody. And, you know, a lot of people still prefer the reg seeds and that's fine. But, you know, um, so many people when ease is their number one thing, a, a feminized auto flower is, is the top of the pile. Um, it is cool to see some other people like helping push the auto flower tide forward, if you will. Um, and so like, let's talk a little bit about the auto flower cup. So um, um, I, I unfortunately missed the auto flower cup the last time I had the opportunity two years ago, because I was actually running a panel at cultivation classic on auto flowers. So I didn't get to go. Um, so you'll have to tell me all about it. So, so, so who's behind the auto flower cup and what have we seen so far? So the 2019 cup was down in the Grants Pass, Oregon area. It was put together by a gentleman of the name of James Hastings. Um, James, I uh, wasn't too familiar with him before the word started buzzing around that this cup was going to be put together. Um, they put the cup together for five days down in Oregon on a campground that was cannabis friendly, which was really, really amazing. And Honestly, the things that I take from that experience were one, it was nice. It was the first time that I'd been around that kind of event. Um, as far as like everybody's there for the same minded goal, everybody's there to share their cannabis cultivation and, you know, exchange information and talk. It was like bringing the forum alive because I got to meet a lot of people that I've only known screen names for years. Yeah. You know, and their personalities outside of that screen name was just an amazing way to see that 
they were the same way on the forum because they all cared about the plant. And it was an experience like, it'll be one of those ones for me to go down like, I'll never forget it. I met so many great people. There was so much good food. Um, could have been a little bit better planned for events over five days, and I'm just being honest. Um, you know, we're pretty much willing, free to roam anywhere down there because it's absolutely gorgeous. There were lakes, there were hiking trails, all kinds of stuff to do. But when it came down time for, like, you know, competition and things, like, people were doing their testing and, um, you know, it was basically people's choice. You know, there was, we entered into it without all the hype, I think, that you sometimes see behind... Um, larger competitions it was nice like a communal thing to where people that had been putting in all this work for all this time and talking to each other we were able to come out show our best and just have a good time over a long weekend yeah five days that's a really long time man i mean like even a even a three-day event feels long by the by day three but you know a five day when you add um you know, the campground and the forest and, you know, I can, I mean, we're in Oregon, so there were probably mushies everywhere. Um, I can see how, you know, a good summertime camp out is, is going to be even more than the cup. It's more like a, it actually sounds more like an auto flower rainbow gathering. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to be completely honest with you, um, <laughs> you know, everybody, you know, enjoyed the, the hikes and the fishing and, um, it was just kind of like this powwow with a award ceremony at the end. And I think the reason it was done for five days is a lot of the stuff wasn't, you know, I've seen different uh, framework as far as these competitions go where the flowers sent out way ahead of time and people have weeks to mull over the different stuff that they're looking at. And I think this is the one spot where it was lacking was because everything had to be tested over those five days so i think that's what gave it its length but i think that it could have been done a little sooner as far as testing because you know you depending on your amount of entries that's a lot of cannabis to get through without having some kind of like entourage effect or you know overlap of what's going on yeah i hear that let's uh let's give some love to jeff lowenfels uh, about his autoflower book too because um you know one of the one of the challenges the autoflower community has is just reaching outside of the autoflower community it's so insular and we you know we we trade genetics and we trade stories and we trade best practices but most of it is kind of like uh inward focusing um which which kind of slows the expansion of the scene which may be for the better right because because it, it makes that, um, you know, primarily authentic, very interested people get involved. But at the same time, if we want the scene to grow and if we want people to buy autoflower seeds from the people putting in the work, the word's got to get out there. And then, you know, so anybody who doesn't know, Jeff Lowenfels is um, uh, known as Lord of the Roots. And he put out a, a seminal uh, a series of books Um uh, all about living soil. You've probably heard of teaming with microbes, uh, teaming with nutrition, and teaming with fungi. You know they are they are a baseline of understanding. Uh, well, growing anything in in soil, but certainly growing cannabis in soil. If you haven't read them, you should check them out. But uh, Jeff got all turned on to autoflowers living up in Alaska and just generally being a you know forty plus year gardening nerd and so he put out um this uh book on autoflowers and um and it was an interesting book um why don't you tell us dan ab about the interesting direction um uh that that jeff took it and and who who his book ended up actually being for um you know in a nutshell it ended up being the introduction for people to 
give an autoflower a try for the first time. And, you know, I have to laugh because, you know, I was excited about the book coming out and, you know, somebody with Jeff's caliber stepping into the limelight with something that we, that you were talking about, we have been, quote unquote, in the shadows with for so long was amazing to see. And, you know, you talked about how, like, it's so much, you know, inclusive with the autoflower community. I think that's, you know, done one or two, you know, done a couple things. One, like you said, we haven't really got out there until somebody like Jeff. But two, it's also created this weird um, bond amongst the breeders and the people who take it passionately to kind of watch out for one another. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of cool to see. But Jeff's exposure um, to the autoflower approach, I think, was great. You know, he joked with me. I told him I was buying the book, and I was honored enough to have a few pictures in there, you know, and that was awesome to me. So, of course, I had to purchase it. And he kept telling me, he's like, no, Dan. He's like, this book isn't for you. He's like, it's not for people who already understand the cultivation of the autoflower. It's for your aunt or your uncle or your crazy cousin who wants to get in there and start growing some homegrown and take an you know, easier approach to it. And, you know, I think Jeff hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, he got it out there. I read through it a couple times and, you know, he's made, he's made a nice introductory way of people to know what an autoflower is, see the basic mechanics of the plant and what to do with it when it's done. And not just with Jeff, sir. Um, I got to say, you know, you stepping out into the limelight um, with the several different seminars that you have done to discuss autoflowering plants. You know, you, between Jeff and yourself, you have given the autoflower community that outward shining light that, hey, these guys are over here doing miraculous things. We see it. We love it. We think you guys should love it too. And this is why. And I think your approach with the live seminars and the, the Shaping Fire recordings that you have done about the autoflowers has really given a broader spectrum of what we're trying to do and what they can do for either a commercial setting or the home grower and patient. Right on, dude. Well, well, first, thanks for saying that. But but I think that Jeff and I come from the same place where we are both like giddy and excited about autoflowers and what it can do for home growers and patients. And um, we, you know, neither of us are breeders, but we're so excited about it. We wanted to talk to people about it. So, you know, he, he wrote a book about it. That was how he, you know, voiced himself. And for me, I, 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 programmed all of 2019 with like autoflower events that were free for folks and stuff. And that was what, what I was able to do. But I think in the end, we all want the same thing. We want, we want the breeders to get the recognition that they deserve for the hard work that they're putting in and these beautiful plants that are designing. And we want to make sure that people um, who have any kind of interest in growing cannabis have can grow cannabis so that they know how to get into it because you know hell um, we all want cannabis to be in gardens as commonly as tomatoes and the only way we can do that is if we've got you know breeders breeding and people you know like like Jeff and I and you uh, telling people that it's happening so so that's cool and also you know there's nothing like um, uh, throwing events um, uh, to be able to meet new cultivators, right? Because like I met so many great people. Um, you know, like like uh, like for example, at a uh, Indo Expo, I was giving a talk on on autoflowers and why she, people should try them, and and Daz was there, you know, and like you know, I had heard about Daz Mephisto and followed him and stuff, and and he came up after the after the talk, and he's all like, "Hey, man, nice to meet you." And uh, you know, it wasn't my best performance, but it was it you know, it was cool to turn people on to stuff, but it was nice 
nice to meet people who um, I look up to in the scene, like Daz, right? You know, good good folks who are doing good work. And I think that's that's part of what makes um, Autoflower so good is because everybody has been so ignored for so long that really there aren't a lot of assholes in the scene. People are really nice to each other because um, we've all been on the, the edges for so long. Yeah, and I agree. And that's the, the second part I was talking about earlier is just kind of it's formed a bond between all of us to where, yeah, I, I haven't I've met a few that were a little persnickety, but I've never met like um, that elitist mentality. It's like, OK, you've experienced this and you've worked with them in this long and you've seen that. But we can both avoid that by doing this, that and the other. It's 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 almost like the forums have shifted into real life um, because one of the main mindsets that we wanted to create on the Autoflower Network was a lack of a better term, a safe place where you come in and share that knowledge and you're not going to get, you know, barked at by 15, 20 other people telling you you're stupid and that Autoflowers are shit. Yeah. You know, it was a place and it was amazing to watch the morphology of that too, because after that tone was set and the site started to gain its momentum, like the admin didn't have to step in. The, the general population, like, there's no room for that here. We're not here for that. And it's cool to hear you see that come out in real life, too. Yeah, I absolutely do. Um, you know, the Autoflower Network, while I don't um, spend a lot of time there because I don't um, breed, I love just going and reading threads to learn best growing practices and honestly for the jokes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> it's the, the, the folks there are really funny. So, um, all right. So, so let's go ahead and take our second break. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, uh, breeding with autoflowers and we're not going to go into it heavy duty uh, science approach. Um, but, but I do want to talk about, um, why breeding autoflowers is are, are different some of the unexpected challenges and uh and mostly why why we need to make sure we have respect for these autoflower breeders because because this is not super easy uh we're going to take a short break and be right back you are listening to shaping fire and my guest today is dan jimmy of mandalorian genetics and the autoflower network as a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You've got so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into your marketing as deeply as you'd like. You know there's more that you could do to reach out to new customers and encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time for it and you're not ready to hire somebody full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. At Blunt Branding, Kirsten Nelson and her team are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility, but that's pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and her team will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, whether it be online or a storefront, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. Now, if you happen to be a new cannabis company or an established company moving from medical to adult use in your state, Kirsten especially can help you. Not only is she well-versed in marketing and finance, but she totally gets cannabis, whole plant medicine, terpenes, heritage farmers, and the particular needs of startups. Check out what she did recently for Moontime Medicinals and Humboldt at MoontimeMedicinals.com. Kirsten and her team put together a whole brand package for them, built their website, and wrote their sales materials. 
No doubt this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on five projects now for various of their clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making a pretty logo. Similarly, every single friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me, and that just does not happen every day. Grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming up. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology solutions in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our newsletter. Blunt Branding, marketing that makes you money. After you've caught up on the latest Shaping Fire episodes, do you sometimes wish there was more cannabis education available to learn? Well, we got you. Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast. When I attend conventions to speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Zoe Sigmund's lecture, Understanding Your Endocannabinoid System, Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Frenchie Cannoli's Lost Art of the Hashishan presentation, Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world, Eric Vlosky and Josh Rutherford on solventless extraction, and Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, too. While there, be sure to check out the three 10-part Shaping Fire Sessions series, one with Kevin Jodry, one with Dr. Ethan Russo, and one with Jeff Lowenfels. And even my own presentations on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business, even though the risks are so high. As of today, there's over 200 videos that you can check out for free. So go to youtube.com forward slash Shango or click on the link in the newsletter. Sometimes the topics I want to share with you are far too brief for an entire Shaping Fire episode. In those instances, I post them to Instagram. I invite you to follow my two Instagram profiles and participate online. The Shaping Fire Instagram has follow-up posts to Shaping Fire episodes, growing and processing best practices, product trials, and, of course, gorgeous flower photos. The Shango Los Instagram follows my travels on cannabis garden tours, my successes and failures in my own garden, insights and best practices from personal grows everywhere, and always gorgeous flower photos. On both profiles, the emphasis is on sharing what I've learned in a way that you can replicate it in your own garden, your own hash lab, or for your own cannabinopathic health. So I encourage you to follow at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los and join our online community on Instagram. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Los. And our guest this week is Dan Jimmy of Mandalorian Genetics and the Autoflower Network. So to bring this show on home, what we're going to talk about next is uh, the actual breeding of the autoflowers because um, it is not the same. You know, I've, I've made seeds, right? I'm not really a breeder. I'm a pollen chucker. You know, I get a male plant I like and a female plant I like, and I put them near each other or I, or I apply some pollen with a paintbrush and, ooh, I've made seeds for next year. And that's 
that's just fun, right? It makes me feel closer to the plant. But when I started listening to breeders talk about breeding autoflowers, I'm like, oh, hell no. That sounds like a lot of work. And, um, and the thing is, is that for the, for the passionate people I know in the, in the breeding community for autoflowers, they ain't no thing to them. They're like, oh, no, well, this is just expected to get something good. And I, like, and I love them for it because I get to pop their seeds. Um, but I think it's a good thing for, for growers to know what's behind the secret sauce so they can you know, properly value these seeds. So, so Dan, why don't you like walk us through um, what the breeding of an autoflower looks like? Yeah, I'll approach it um, in two different ways, and we'll keep it, you know, like you, like at a high level here. That way, we can get a generalistic understanding. Um, you know, you did mention, and I'll start with the simplicity first. Um, you did mention about, you know, you take your favorite cultivar and male and then female, put them beside each other, and then you get seeds from that run. And autoflower to autoflower is pretty much going to do that for you. If you are somebody who is wanting to experience pollen chucking to see how this takes place. If you have a 100% autoflower female and a 100% autoflower male, and you let them pollinate each other, you will get 100% autoflowering seeds. Now, with that said, um, you're going to get a lot of genetic variety. You're going to see a lot of different things. So expect all kinds of different phenotypical expression showing up in that seed but at a high level and if you just want to experience that process and you know be self-sufficient and make your own seeds that's one way you can approach it now the more in-depth side of it and the side that you were talking about with the complexity levels is i think the breeder or the the more current breeders approach to it is um, taking a photo period male or female and introducing it to an autoflower now, when you do so, you have a lot of work to do. And what I mean by that is you have generation, generational selections that have to take place in order for you to make that plant a true autoflower. Um, I think a lot of the earlier autoflowers that were done this way were done with the expectation of bringing out the autoflowering trait first. And I can understand that, you know, like we were talking earlier, the hype strains, you want to get that fast flowering cookies out there or the fast flowering GMO. And the quickest way to do that is inbreed or, you know, make your initial parental selections and then inbreed looking for the autoflower trait only. Um, if you're looking more to change the morphology and get rid of a lot of the ruderalis, I think there's a lot more of a selection process that has to go on. And with that selection process, um, I'll cover that a little bit. Your initial cross is going to give you your F1 seeds. Those F1 seeds are going to be primarily dominant in the photoperiod line's genetic makeup. It's going to be very rare for you to see a fully autoflowering expression out of that first round of seeds. So then you ask yourself, well, what do I do to make that show up? And the best option there is to inbreed that line. And what I mean by that is you take a male and a female from that first generation and inbreed them together, giving you your F2 generation. At the F2 generation, you're going to start seeing similarities from mom, similarities from dad. You may even see some autoflowering expression. Now, with that, I will caution you back to what we were talking about, you know, breeding quickly for just the autoflowering trait. If you're, that's your end goal, look, start looking at the F2, and if you find you know, one that is going to go full autoflower and one that kind of stalls out from the autoflower, it'll grow up, it'll start to pre-flower, it'll go into what I call bud set, 
and then it needs 12-12 to finish its life cycle. At that point, I think that would be a good selection for you. If you're just hunting something that's going to come out in an autoflower fashion, that would be my next round to select from. If you're looking to kind of incorporate you know, what you really liked about the photo period mom, but you want just the autoflowering genetic from the father or vice versa, I think you need to start really digging into your seed count at that point. At the F2, look for something that's doing the stall on both sexes, both male, female, and then push that to the third, you know, generation. And at the third generation, you could probably start seeing a little bit more of a balance between autoflowering and um, some that still may be photo period. And then you can start picking at that point based upon your terpene profiles, your flower densities, your expressions of leaf color, whatever your, you know, tickles your fancy, and then making your F4. By F4, if you select in that manner, you should see really close to 100% autoflowering genetics. Um, it's a little bit more time intensive. It's a lot more sifting through seeds. And there's a good possibility if you pick up that nature or if you pick up that direction that you're going to have to go through quite a few seeds to find what you want. If you want a true, if you want to represent both parents truthfully, I believe. So if it takes to F4 just to get all of the seeds to be autoflower, um, do we have to go further than that to also lock down some of the individual trait or like the like like taste traits, shall we say? Like, do you need to do? Can, can you be selecting for both at the same time? Can you be selecting for both the autoflower traits and the um, you know uh, uh, yield and potency traits at the same time, or do do you need to choose which ones first? Um, I think you could do it all at the same time if, you know, you're taking good notes and you know what you're hunting, you know. I'm guessing you need a big sift, too. As I'm asking the question, yeah. I'm all like, oh, you can you can choose for both if you've got a lot to work with. And so if you're if you're if you're going to you're trying to do this with 20 seeds, you're going to be a lot more limited than if you're trying to do this with 200 seeds. That's correct. And that's what I was talking yeah. about earlier, you know, having that sift. And also, you know, if you're wanting to do a true fo photo to auto cross, you know, have your end goal and have your mindset, you know, what, where you want to be at the end. And you can definitely do that sifting and hunt out the multiple traits. You know, you see one that goes to pre-flower and stalls, but it has the leaf structure you want. It's got a balance on each side that you want it. The plant itself looks balanced. You see some nice symmetry in the plant. And then you might have color from the other one. You're like, okay, I want the color too. And you can do that as part of your sift. And I think that's what's creating the more modern day autoflower. I think that's what a lot more the approach is rather than seeing a lot of, you know, new stuff come out that's yeah it's autoflower but it still kind of looks like ruderalis but it's had a different photo parent that wasn't worked as in depth you know needing to work something to f4 or further you know it's definitely further if you're not going to have a lot of sift um that that means that you're gonna be doing a lot of cycles and selecting um 
I would. Um, is it a fair assumption to say that a lot more of the autoflower folks are incorporating indoor uh, breeding over the winters? Because, like you know, with a lot of the, a lot of the um, photo period stuff, um, people can just grow outdoors during the summer and get work done enough that over a couple seasons, they'll they can develop something really good for the outdoor. But um, if you need to get to F four before all of the, your seeds are even showing the autoflower trait, that tells me that um you know to get to get anything done in your lifetime you're going to need to be growing in you know multiple tents indoors at the same time as you're you're watching for expressions under the sun during the summer and testing that's absolutely correct i think that's the one key thing that we need as breeders is the indoor space separated space especially because i mean yes pollen is highly volatile but there are easy steps to contain and control that um but it does take around-the-clock, year-round work, especially if you're working on something new. And I, you did ask um, in the earlier question, and I didn't touch on it, but I, I'd like to, is you asked about like continuing the F generations for stabilization. And to answer that question is yes. Um, a lot of the work that I have done um, is in the neighborhoods of F6, F7, F8, and F9. Um, and then really around F5 or F6, I'm starting to see that balance across. So not only do you have the years of work or the time frame of work just to get what you want, then you have to stabilize it to a point where it's become that same or close to same cultivar expression across the 10-pack. That way it's not like Pokemon and you open it up and there's 15 different types. And I like to steal that one from you. So. <laughs> I, I said that? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure you had a meme on that at one point in time. On your oh, feed, yeah, so. I did. That's funny. Yeah. All those different animals together. Ah, oh, dude, that's funny. Um, all right. So so now that people are getting an idea of what it would take, um, I'm sure that there, people are falling into at least two categories. There's one category of folks who, you know, they just want to understand autoflowers because they're going to grow some and they want to sound cool talking with their friends about autoflowers. And then there's another basket, which are people who are like, OK, I want to try breeding some autoflowers. I've, I've got this idea I want to do. I've got these tastes I want to bring out. Um what would you tell what are, what are the steps that you would tell somebody to do if they wanted to um, get involved? I'm assuming that there's probably a thread on autoflower net that's dedicated to this and then and then what are people using as the ruderalis input nowadays? I'm sure that there's you know some kind of stabilized option that most people are working with that's hard to screw up. Um, I think a majority, and I'll answer that part first. So, like, the majority of the people, I think, are using predefined autoflowering genetics that have been worked for years. So I don't think a lot of people are going back to pure ruderalis for their foundation because that takes a lot of work. Um, it takes a whole lot of work because you're not only just hunting the autoflower f trait from the, the original ruderalis, what you're also dealing with is all of the other genetic recessive traits of low potency, bad yield, funky growth. Um, so if they are wanting to learn about it, I definitely think, you know, get out there and find some regular seeds and put them side by side to understand it. If they want to get into the depth, I would get out there and I would look for, you know, reputable breeders, and especially uh, independent breeders, because the independent breeders tend to have more regulars, which I was talking about before, which are really, really hard to find. Um, 
you don't have a lot of people out there offering regular auto flowers these days. And to have a foundation without the complexity of understanding how to feminize a seed, you need to have a male counterpart. Um, let so, me. I want to. I want to plug um, Heart Rock Mountain right now because that's where I've been. Uh, he, his seeds and your seeds are the are the stuff that I've been getting that's regular, and it's actually kind of an interesting upside. Um, I'm a big fan of the Dragonfly Earth Medicine uh, Regenerative Agriculture Techniques Certification, and um, at the moment, um, most of their people are are shying away from from making feminized seeds, and so they're putting out lots of autoflowers, but they're all regs. And so if you can find um, a seed breeder who's playing with autoflowers that's also dragonfly certified, it's like hitting a gold rush. <laughs> oh, I agree. Yeah, totally. I, um, I've, uh, his um, Hard Rock Mountain uh, Farms, uh, their, um, their lion's claw is one of the first ones that I personally came across that truly hits like funk and gas. I, I don't know why. And, and maybe it's just the stuff that I've grown. I've probably only grown 45 or 50 autoflower cultivars but do you find gas is kind of still missing in autoflowers i don't i don't i haven't come across you know i come across like you know you know the sweets and the candies and the bubble gums and the and even and the cheeses and the northern um, cheese hazes and stuff but but i don't i haven't found a ton of gas i personally haven't either i've got a few different cultivars and i got one that smells like acetone mm. and it was the first chemically chemical smelling autoflower that I had ever personally experienced and I've you know obviously been to a few different events I've got friends that have been growing auto cultivars for years and you're right the floral the berries the fruits the candies are really coming out from them um, but I think the more modern day auto is leaning that way because they're getting the the breeders that are working with them are the ones that are taking their time are in search of those terpenes so I definitely think we're gonna start seeing more of a gassy because that's one thing that I've been approached and asked the most honestly by people that are interested in growing these in large scale is so where are the terpenes at where's the gas at like we want that fuel smell because that's what the public wants and i even think even the home grower wants that for a nostalgic reason you know because that's a very common um nose profile that we we often associate to cannabis and it's getting there but i don't think it's full-fledged hammered there yet i think we still have some work to do yeah, I think that you're right on that. And so let's use that to transition here to kind of a wrap up. Where do you see the autoflower scene uh, going right now? What are the major trends that you think are going to play themselves out over the next couple of years? Number one is just the uprise in the home grow. Um, I'm part of a bunch of different groups, a bunch of different forums. And, you know, I can see as each new state is going legal, either medicinally or adding recreational to their medicinal certificate, you know, legalities, a lot of home growers are really starting to pick it up because they can literally put a two by four tent in their closet with an LED and get at it. You know, I remember back in the day we would grow them in PC cases. Um, because you mean, they like, were so you mean like computer cases? Yeah. So I would just you know, take a large computer case, gut the internals, rig up some, you know, fluorescent lights inside of it and let it go to town. Wow. Um, you know, so seeing the plant evolve from that into the home grow, I definitely think that's we're going to see a huge influx there. And I'm already seeing it um, based upon uh, Instagram. And if, like I said, a few other other platforms, you really see the home growers grabbing a hold of the autoflower, especially now. The states are legal. And the second wave and what I'm really seeing is supplemental for farming. Um, 
especially in outtalk specifically to our climate um our climate in this northern section is similar to the one that's over in maine and you know kind of central u.s michigan and stuff like that and i'm seeing farmers use them to supplement either their veg space during the winter because they're an all outdoor facility and they veg their moms over the winter they do their cuttings and stuff like that and they're producing a yield during the same time they're flowering out or not flowering out excuse me vegging out their next year's crop indoor facilities are filling their mother rooms with autoflowers while they're waiting for their clones to take and get ready for the bloom room it's adding another layer of revenue for the company with extremely low overhead costs because as you and i know and jeff speaks about it in the book they don't need a lot of food now there are, i'll caveat that there are a few out there you know as the selective breeding is taking place that they do need some food they need a little bit more attention but i think that's with any kind of plant but i'm seeing that wave hit the the farm the large-scale farm market too from coast to coast it's really interesting to see how they're being used as a tool and some of them are selling it as flour and some of them are a lot of them are doing it for extracts maybe hash rosin maybe for cartridges for edibles um see so yeah, a lot of different options happening with it so i'm seeing those two direct avenues really starting to move through um with the auto wave so to speak it's really interesting to see folks who um ordinarily would not be into autoflowers suddenly warm up to them and start growing in them when they realize that you know if you start your autoflowers um early in may that they'll finish uh in, in you know, the same time of year that a light depth would and so you actually have flour to bring to the market that's uh fresh and usable uh, maybe even just um you know if you're doing outdoors on a on a less quality part of your property because because they actually you know being from Siberia a lot of these plants like really like to be abused and have stones in the soil and like just be kind of ganky soil but then you know other folks who are doing indoor they realize that oh wow we can grow autos in our mother room or in our veg tent you know because they are they are light independent Correct. And you know, I mean, you're vegging out and you're holding your mothers at either 18.6 or 24, any kind of higher variation. And these guys are just going through their mechanics and they just need a little bit of water along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is, I think that as they are increasingly picked up um, by, I don't know, let's, let's, let's call them commercial tastemakers, right? As, right. as, as the bigger players are, are bringing out autoflowers, you know, early season offerings, you know, I think that, um, you know, the last vestiges of autoflower taboo will go away and it's just going to be part of the scene it's going to be like you know you know regs light depth and autoflowers and it's it's they're all going to be on the same playing field i would love to see that um and like you said a minute ago it's you know slowly changing one mind at a time some people that were so hell-bent about you know oh it's ditch weed oh it's just that you know it's low rider to actually watching them grow and then they see it and they're like holy shit okay so yeah it's not the same thing anymore and that's usually all it takes if you can get the a person who is a disbeliever and say here here's 50 seeds grow them let me know what you think you know and that usually helps turn the mind around and you know providing pictures and coas you know that that really helps too because you know your commercial taste makers uh love to see numbers and when they see numbers and, and everything lines up to their model, 
I think they're more apt to do so. And I hate that sometimes it takes that depth of transition, but sometimes it just does. Some people are open to it. Yeah, we'll give it a shot. Other people need a little bit more proof. But they're slowly coming around. It's nice to see. Yeah, you give to use your example, you give somebody 50 seeds and they look at it, they will look at autoflowers all with new eyes because they'll see a couple different phenos, some of which they'll like. They'll see the increased consistency uh, versus what it was like before 2010. And then they'll smoke it and go like, damn, though, this is really good. Especially since, you know, it's it's a misnomer that potency is the end all anyway, you know, like THC potency. And a lot, a lot you know, you can get stuff in the mid-teens with good terpene profiles that just give you a fantastic buzz. You know, people who are demanding, you know, you know, 28, 29, 30%, I think they're missing the bigger picture. And and since autoflowers don't do those kinds of numbers, um, if you're if you're gonna cozy up to autoflowers, it also teaches you that you don't need those kinds of THC potency numbers either. You know, and I agree with you, and thank you so much for saying that. Uh, you know, I've had stuff that's been in the lower percentage, you know, from a uh, a photo period plant that you know it might have it had you know just enough terpenes it had the right amount of thc there was enough synergy there to melt my face off to where like you smoke a 31 percent and it's just like oh you know it's it there's something else going on there over than just potency or even trichrome coverage you know that's the other thing too and a lot of that was one of the that's one of the biggest reps that autos get is oh they lack trichromes i could see that at a beneficial point for hash making but like i also don't believe that that's fully translated into potency. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, since you mentioned hash, one of the things that um, I personally like about autoflowers is, um, in my experience, they don't nug up the same way that uh, many photo periods do. They're, they're, they're a little looser. And um, I think they hash great. They, because the, the internal trichomes are so much easier to get cold and to have, you know, drop off and leave the actual material without having to beat it all up. I think that autoflowers are great for hash. Yeah, I, I've got some experience or, you know, had some really good experiences with returns on, you know, either ice water hash or even dry ice hash, um, you know, a lot better breakage because I think exactly what is happening is what you said is you they don't get super tight. There are some out there that do, but a majority don't. And there's more surface area of good trichrome heads that you can actually get into rather than having to pulverize it and release a lot of the chlorophyll, too. Yeah, right on. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining me, especially on this like quiet and sleepy Sunday morning after Christmas. Um, I really appreciate uh, you sharing your time and your experience. And you know, honestly, you know, I knew I wanted to do this show about uh, the the history of autoflowers so that we could, you know, get this into the history books before it's uh, either lost or, or before some big autoflower company, you know, commoditizes the story and claims that they invented autoflowers flowers, you know, um, and there's right. not, there's not a lot of people who were there at the early days. And so, um, luckily you were, and, uh, you know, your involvement with autoflower.net gave you a, um, you know, gives you a really big perspective. So, um, thanks for taking your time to uh, share that with us. And, you know, thanks for just generally being a dude with good cheer who, uh, represents the autoflower community positively. Well, thank you, Shango, and, and thank you tremendously for having me on this morning. I really appreciate it, and I, you know, love what you do and the involvement with the community and the, you know, how we first met with your Vimeo events over on the island and seeing your compassion to the people as well as the plant and spreading good knowledge. It's an honor to be on the show. You know, I, I hold you in high regard, and especially the guests that you have. So, thank you for your time this morning and bringing me on. 
Right on, brother. Thank you. So if you want to follow up on this stuff that we've been talking about today, uh, here's a whole bunch of avenues for you to go down. Uh, first and foremost, um, I recommend that you follow uh, Dan Jimmy's Instagram, which is um, unendingly interesting and has beautiful flower photos. And that's on Instagram at Mandalorian underscore genetics. Um, uh, also, uh, you want to probably want to check out autoflower.net, which is the forum where you're going to learn all about your best practices and up and coming breeders and see great photos. And, and as you get into autoflower growing and breeding, if you've got questions, that is a fabulous community to be a member of very warm, uh, very, very low amount of trolls, just a really great heartfelt community. Um, if you want to, uh, uh, get more of Dan Jimmy, um, you can you can enjoy the YouTube video that is on um, my Shango Los YouTube channel of Dan before he was using his uh, his 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 government name, I guess, uh, of of Dan Jimmy. Uh, he he did a, a special video with another friend of ours, uh, Sebring. Um, um, all about um, giving seeds away to patients, and um, and you know for those of you who listen to the show, um, patient focused breeding and patient focused growing is very important to me. And these two guys both um, both uh, make seeds to give away and also facilitate other people giving away their seeds as well. And um, you can you can find that uh, giveaway. I think the video is called "Giveaway Seeds" on. Uh, on my YouTube channel. Um, you can also uh, listen to earlier Shaping Fire episodes that had to do with autoflowers. Um, there was uh, episode 47, uh, which was uh, the very first Shaping Fire Live that was at uh, Cultivation Classic in uh, Portland. Um, and my guests for that are Jeff Lowenfels, who wrote the book we were talking about earlier, and Seth Crawford, who is a um, an autoflower breeder from uh, uh, Oregon CBD Seeds. Um, they focus on making autoflowers for the hemp market but the two of them together on on stage not only was uh, insightful for uh, both uh, commercial growers and home growers but they're also both funny as hell dudes so that was a good presentation um you can find the video version of that on YouTube, or you can just listen to Shaping Fire episode 47, audio only, because it works either way. And then uh, you can also check out episode uh, Shaping Fire 53, um, all about uh, recruiting new cannabis gardeners with autoflowers. And that's my interview with Jeff Lowenfels about his book and um, and about how we, uh, you know, through things like his book, we're going to expand the autoflower scene, which I got to admit, I'm very proud. He asked me to... Uh, to write a testimonial on. So it's my first first book I'm on the jacket cover on. So that's pretty cool. Uh, you also on the Shaping Fire um, YouTube channel, you can see my own presentation on why autoflowers are useful to patients. Uh, recorded uh, one version of it in Portland at uh, Indo Expo and another version at Indo Expo Denver. And those are both on the YouTube channel. And then um, if, you, if you want to uh, get direct links to any of this or links to uh, Heart Rock Mountain Farm that I mentioned or Mephisto Genetics, which we mentioned, um, all of those links 
will be on um, the page for this episode at shapingfire.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.